You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Kathleen Richardson, Professor of Ethics and Culture of Robots and Artificial Intelligence at De Montfort University. The lecture, A Human Attachment Crisis, Can the Robot Save Us, was given as part of the Plotting the Future series. Led by UCD Humanities Institute, UCD Institute for Discovery and UCD Geary Institute for Public Policy, Plotting the Future is a public lecture series and forum for debate that explores the urgent question of what it means to be human in the age of artificial intelligence and robotics. You can listen to previous lectures in the series on the Plotting the Future website and also on the UCD Humanities Institute's podcast channels on iTunes and SoundCloud. The lecture took place in the UCD School of Law on the 9th of November 2017 and was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Professor Richardson was introduced by Associate Professor Patricia McGuire, Director of the UCD Institute for Discovery. So good evening everybody, I think we'll start. So my name is Patricia McGuire and I'm the director of the UCD Institute for Discovery. Together with my colleagues in the UCD Humanities Institute and the UCD Geary Institute for Public Policy, we are delighted to welcome you all this evening to our Plot in the Future series. So this is a public lecture series that explores the question of what it means at the moment to be human in the age of artificial intelligence and robotics. So we are delighted to see so many people here this evening and um, it's our great pleasure to welcome Professor Kathleen Richardson here. So Professor Richardson is a Professor of Ethics and the Culture of Robots and AI at De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK. She's awarded her PhD from the Department of Anthropology in Cambridge and then she went and spent some time as well during her PhD studying in MIT. She's the author of several books including An Anthropology of Robots and AI, Annihilation, Anxiety and Machines. The title of her talk today is um, A Human Attachment Crisis, Can the Robots Save Us? And she has just joined us, we're very lucky, she's just joined us today from the Web Summit in Lisbon, where she spoke on the topic of why we must ban sex robots. So um, on behalf of the three institutes and my predecessor in this role, Professor Adrian Ottawell, we are absolutely honoured to have you here today, Kathleen, and delighted to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome, Kathleen. When I was thinking up the theme for this talk, I came up with the idea, an attachment crisis, can the robot save us? Because in a way, uh, that seems to be what's going on. About two years ago, I actually developed a project idea, and I called the project idea MOTHER, because all the European Union projects have these uh, acronyms. And my project was called Making Others the Human in the Ethics of Robotics. And whilst it did get through to the first stage and I got into interview, it didn't pass. But I think um, if anyone is from the EU watching this or listening, I told you so. And in fact... What I, what I was trying to say was important then is perhaps even more important now. So I'm going to talk about some of these themes from my talk. And if you think about the image on the screen, it might remind you of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because in that film, we see, well, we see a lot of themes in the film about what it means to be human. And this kind of imagination of being born in a universe 
So I think this, uh, this image of a, <coughs> of a fetus is, is very compelling. So looking at some of my history, I started looking at the making of robots back in 2001. And I was interested in, well, what happened was I went to, I, I was studying social anthropology at Cambridge. And my plan was to go to Amazonia and look at, you know, how people anthropomorphize nature. I went to the department to see if my results were ready and whether I got onto the course and they weren't ready. So I decided to go and occupy myself by going to the cinema. And on the cinema at the time was AI, artificial intelligence. And I don't know if anyone has seen the film, but it's about a family who lose their own child um, through illness. They're not dead. They're in like suspended animation. And the company that the father works for offers them a substitute child you know, a child to take their own child place in his absence. And I became very interested in this idea that what would happen if you designed robots in the image of children? Uh, would we relate to them differently? Would we start treating, treating them differently? So that, you know, uh, by the middle of that film, I decided I was going to study robots instead of Amazonia. And when I got back, I found out I got accepted onto the course and... Uh, told my supervisor, and look at me now, 17 years later. So a theme that is very important to me from that work is looking at the idea of robots playing these more intimate roles in our lives. So um, I went on from looking at the development of social robots at MIT. These are robots not designed as appliances that you can use, perhaps like a toaster or something, but machines that are designed to socially interact with you so that you can you know, feel like you're having some kind of relationship with. And then from there, I realized that they started talking about autism quite a lot. And they started making analogies between children with autism and adults with autism and machines. And, um, well, a number of things that they did. One of the things that they did was they tried to imagine what it might be like to be a machine. And they used an idea from autism studies uh, called mind blindness to try and put themselves into the shoes of a machine. They also think about what it might be like to um, have autism by making these um, analogies between autistic persons and machines all the time. And it comes from this idea, I don't know if you know about the work of Simon Baron-Cohen, but he makes this very, he builds this gendered model. He said, men are um, less social, less empathetic than females, uh, females are naturally empathetic, you know, their roles are to take care of others. Uh, men like to create systems. What autism really is, is this an extreme male brain. And when you get on this extreme male brain end, you know, then there's a loss of sociality. There's a loss of socialness. So my work was really trying to figure out what was going on there. Why were they making these analogies between autistic persons and machines um, and men and women, you know? But, you know, biologically, we're pre-programmed to carry out roles in different kinds of ways in society. I also came across this image as well. So it was designed by um, a South American artist. And again, it was for an autistic magazine. And I don't think there was any malice behind this kind of idea that the child with autism is like a machine. But again, by, by putting these, by juxtaposing these two objects together there's kind of an inference that there is some kind of connection between them. So it's from this work, the designing of social robots. 
social machines, autism, males and females, that I started to ask very, very fundamental questions. What does it mean to have an attachment? How do we create our attachments? How important are our attachments? Can we have attachments with machines? Could machines substitute intimate human relationships? Um, and I, I want to make it clear here, I'm not talking about relationships that, um, that are not intimate. So many of us have relationships in the world that are intimate. You know, we're interdependent, we're interpersonal with people. Um, but there are many people in the world that we don't have that kind of intimacy with. And, uh, but every human being has an interpersonal sphere of existence. No human being exists without it. But I noticed something as my research developed. I noticed that on the one hand, we seem to be living in a universe where we have more human beings than ever before. We're entering seven and a half billion people on the planet. Um, and I've got some figures there, you can read them. 325 million people living in the United States, 126 people living in Japan, 65 million people living in the UK. And what's interesting about this is that these are all countries where people say there is a problem occurring in people's attachments. These are some of the most highly populated countries of the world. So on the one hand, you've got this surplus of human beings. <clears throat> but then, on the other hand, you seem to have a deficit idea of human beings, that somehow we're running out of human beings, that we're going to have the wrong kind of human beings in the world. Everyone's going to be ageing and there's not going to be enough young people to kind of look after them. And this was actually from an EU report. And then kind of, you know, I can imagine these economists sitting around the table going, well, how many people would you need to keep someone going, you know, from the age of 65 plus? Two. They came up with two. I don't know where they got that idea from. But, um, so, you know, there's a, there is something in this. So there's a huge population. We think about it on a global scale. Some countries in the world are increasing their population. Other countries are decreasing their population. And in terms of there are certain other things occurring. So, for, for example, across Europe, there are less children being born. In places like Japan, there are less children being born. So there is this um, strange, the most advanced economies seem to be having some kind of slowing down, if you like, some kind of um, retreat from relationship. So I started to think about this in terms of attachment and an attachment crisis that we might be experiencing. Because even if there are lots of people in the world, it seems the robots are going to be the ones that are going to help us with this attachment crisis. So who are the populations that we've, we've identified that there are attachment problems. And I'll clarify in a while what, what I mean by attachment. So the first thing is the aging populations. There's uh, increased isolation amongst aging populations. Rather than think about, well, why might that be? Perhaps it could have been years of state cuts um, to services. It could be more intensified isolation. Could be new changing work structures. Forget all that. It's there. It's a problem. Let's give aging people robots. So that was the first thing. And I remember people telling me about this back in the early 2000s. And 
I actually didn't really know what to say because <laughs> I, I, I think I went along with a lot of other people. I thought, well, a robot's better than nothing. That's what I thought. I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say. But then they started thinking about other areas that you could develop robots around. So children with autism. So the idea then, the child with autism is a bit more closer to the machine than a person. And if you decorate the machine to look human-like, it forms some kind of bridge between their world and ours. So that's what they were saying. And if you look at their arguments and their ideas. And if you're interested in the subject more deeply, I've got a book coming out um, next year on autism and robots and attachment. Another thing that they started to do, so this was even before sex robots, we'll get into those in a minute. Um, another thing that they started to do, they started to create robots that looked like children. Now, when I was in the labs at MIT, I noticed this when I arrived. So even if the robots did look kind of like the ro very clunky type robots, around the tobe, robots would be decorated with toys. And so... When I asked the researcher about this, they gave me two explanations. The first thing they said was, well, you've got to think in Euro-American culture, you know, we've got this problem with robots. There's, a, there's an image problem with them. People think they're frightening and, you know, and scary, and then they're going to terminate you. So if we produce them like children, we'll, we'll get people more comfortable with them. I mean, they were quite conscious of this. This was part of their strategy. So we designed them very you know, cute and cuddly, and familiarize people with the, the robots. It's almost like what I observed in the film, actually, AI, artificial intelligence, designing robots in particular kinds of ways to elicit certain responses. And there was something else that was going on as well. They were saying, well, you know, a robot is, is like a, you know, because in, in, in the robotics worldview, humans are machines, just complex machines, you know, which we can't figure out the arrangements of. But as soon as you figure out how to arrange the machines, um, then you, you could build a machine like a machine. You could build a human being like a machine. But they were saying another reason is we want to get people to help the robots to, in fact, not um, to have lower expectations of them. Because when people go into robotics lab, is they expect robots to be like they've seen in the movies, and no robots are like that, not even today. They don't exist. So if we design them cute and cuddly, then it will lower people's expectations. It will help them develop more affectionate relationships for these machines. I didn't realize quite significantly what was happening during that time. But I think now, over the last 17 years, we've seen these, uh, these kind of trends unfold in all kinds of different kinds of ways. So what is attachment? Attachment is interpersonal. It's something that binds us with other human beings. Our existence is dependent on our attachments. Uh, they don't have to be good attachments. So, for example, no one in this room here would be alive if they didn't have attachments. Because if no one was there to feed you and clothe you and help you develop as an infant, you would have died. <laughs> and some people imagine that actually you know, machines or animals could play this role. And there are all these fictions, you know, that animals could play these caregiving roles to human infants. So uh, I've been looking into this, and the stories of animals that, well, the stories are few and far between. Obviously, everybody knows fictional tales like the Jungle Book. So 
Um, we've got this imagination that human infants could be cared, you know, could be looked after by another species. But the reality is that there aren't many records available. They aren't very reliable. But there was, there have been some interesting accounts, like from the 19th century. And when they began to record these accounts, what they began to notice was the infants imitated the animals in which they were brought up in. So they actually uh, mimicked the sounds of the animal group that they were a part of. Or they behaved in a manner, so they walked on four legs rather than two, for example. So we know that um, there's not only, it's not only a matter of keeping a child alive, but the child itself is developing its own kind of... Um, uh, developmentally, it's developing itself depending on its attachment figure that it's interacting with. There's also attachment theory, which many people might know about, developed in the 1940s, which was try a psychoanalytic approach to a kind of scientific, it was kind of bringing together psychoanalysis and uh, um, uh, ethnology. And, and through attachment theory, tried to look at the idea that infancy... And childhood is an important stage in development in children's lives. And it does matter how you treat children, because um, we know that if you harm children, if you bring them up in very negative environments, if they're abused, for example, they can develop all kinds of um, cognitive, behavioural and social difficulties. And then, so we've got this attachment about, as a species, uh, between us, you know, our human uh, attachment with each other. We've got the idea you can be brought up by another species, animals. Um, we've got um, the theory of attachment through, through Bowlby, looking at psychoanalysis and in infancy. But then we've got other ideas about attachment, and I think these are really interesting in relation to this. So we've got this idea of attachment as you can be attached to an object. So you can be attached to your mobile phone. I'm sure all of you have been told that you've got attachments to your mobile phone. In, um, there's a film here. This is an image from a film called Her. And the main character in the film forms a, a relationship with an AI avatar. So this idea that I, I was kind of being uh, introduced to was that human beings don't just develop important attachments to other human beings. They can develop them to objects, or they can develop them in relation to um, machines. So attachment itself is a, a broad-ranging theory. I would say something is interesting about the history of attachment. Think about attachment just as a bond, a tie. Um, you know, that we are, you, are, you exist because of your interpersonal relationships. That's basically what it is. And, and your sociality is kind of made up of those relationships. And your ability to go out in the world is informed by the kinds of relationships that you've had as a human being. So it's kind of this, um, it's this iterative process. Through relationship, we develop relationship, we become relationship, we are in relationship with each other. But what was really interesting, I began to notice, was this idea by John Bowlby, which was developed in psychoanalytic theory to talk about attachment to between parents and children was picked up by corporations to talk about attachments to products. So they began to do focus groups. You know, they took the theory of attachment and they began to do focus groups around the 60s and 70s. 
and ask people about attachments to mobile phones, uh, brands, and those kind of things. So this language about attachment could be something other than just this interpersonal human thing. It could actually be something you had with an, an object comes out of the kind of advertising branding culture of the 1960s. And you'll still find that today because <clears throat> the thing about a human relationship is even though an adult and a child are very different, it's interpersonal, it's, it's mutual, it's, it's uh, multidirectional, it's reciprocal. There are changes taking place in both parties in the relationship. It's a dynamic, IU interrelated interaction. The thing about an object is it's an instrument that you use, that you can make use of. Um, the instrument itself has no needs, wants, desires of its own. Uh, it doesn't exist. It wasn't born. It won't know love. Um, it, has, it has no kind of interiority or ontological experience. So I became interested in why did people start talking about this kind of attachment in my field of robotics? And why were they presenting this kind of atta attachment in the same language and terms as that kind of attachment, this human interpersonal attachment? So um, from this, I don't know if you know about Harry Harlow's monkeys. Has anyone ever seen those experiments? Yeah, they're really awful experiments, by the way. I wouldn't... Um, don't ever repeat them if you're scientists. So what they did was they took these infants from, a cave, uh, from their mothers on birth, they put them in a lab, and they released these monkeys into a cage. And the monkeys could either go to the wire uh, mesh, which had food, a food bottle, and it, and it had another monkey in it, which had the soft covering. And basically what they found is that the monkeys, when released into the cage, they would go to the food immediately, right, and, and, and drink until they were full. And then they would spend the rest of the time clinging on to the soft monkey. And the footage is really distressing, so I, I don't really want to show it, but it is quite distressing to watch. And sometimes they would be on that, they're clinging, you know, for dear life. And then the scientists would do all these awful things as well, like they would... Uh, introduce loud noises, um, send in scary objects into the room to see how frightened the monkeys would become. So from these experiments, Harry Harlow was trying to make the point about attachment again. He was trying to show that actually, you know, there is something, it's not about just food. It's not just food that, ex that infants get from adults, their caregivers, their mothers or their fathers. It's something else. It's love. It's, it's comfort. Um, but I think what happened next to these monkeys is really important because when the, monkey, when the experiments finished, the monkeys couldn't, um, couldn't be monkeys. They couldn't go back into their own communities. They couldn't mate. Uh, they had trouble with self-harming. Um, they developed all kinds of, if you like, mental health issues, um, it, there's now, it's called zoo, zoo psychosis, I believe, there's a term for it. So I think what happens when you deprive human beings of attachment, I mean, we've got clear evidence from animal studies that depriving animals from their own species is very detrimental to them. It causes them great distress and uh, it interferes with their ability to be monkeys or, or other kinds of, of uh, ontological beings. 
So I want to, um, I'm going to go on to this a bit more because I started to think about this in terms of human culture by thinking about what was going on in the animal world. So in the animal world, when you put animals in zoos, what they tend to do is they tend to develop these, um, if you like, distorted behaviors, self-harm, pacing. They tend to develop some behaviors that you might see and observe in children who are very, very distressed, like rocking back and forth, um, hiding away. And as I said, there was a there was a, a, a term coined called zoocosis to describe this. And so if we're, if we're as human cultures taking animals outside their own species-specific sociality, their own lived worlds, where they become their animals, if you like, through their relationships with each other, through the kind of practices that we, we have around animals, we can deprive them of that, and I think that's a real problem. It's not a... I'm not doing a talk on against zoos, but I am against zoos. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is animals are not machines. And uh, it's a bit of a, like a philosophical error that the humanists made, that somehow in trying to make themselves seem more, be more superior, they had to put themselves above everything, including animals. So they denigrated animals to machines. And they turned animals who are living beings into forms of property. In other work, I kind of look at this because one of the things that roboticists do is they map on a human-animal relationship to a human-robot relationship. Um, and I don't think it's the same thing because even animals respond back to you. You know, you do have some interaction with an animal. They are alive. They have communication systems. You know, they have feelings and memories and all these kind of things. They're not machines. So I, I would, anyone who's studying this area at all, I would look very carefully when you're looking at this literature, the language people use and the kind of comparisons often that people are making between humans and machines or animals and machines. So now, you know, now we've got this problem in society. We've got these people not being able to form relationships uh, elderly people at first, and then it was children with autism, but now it's turning into adult men unable to form relationships. So adult men is this new growth area who are becoming a lonely species. And the robots that are going to help them are the sex robots. Because now I'm going to thought I'm going to the sex robots a bit. So I talk a bit more about those and um, how this very instrumental idea of attachment or a very instrumental way of looking at human beings gets transferred into the way that we think about robots. And I think sex robots is a really good way of doing this. So I constructed a theory around this that I call property relations. Um, I don't think there's anything I'm saying that's particularly new. I just like the frame of it. <coughs> because in property relations... What I was trying to get at is the idea is that we're all recast as different forms of property. And the more that we can buy into the idea of being property, then that means that we can have relationships with property. So we have spontaneously occurring human beings, and then we have um, artificially created commercial commodities. Now, the people who create the artificial commercial commodities want to sell them. So they have to always think about new ways of selling commodities, new markets, 
new kinds of ways of advertising products to us. And I think in this area, if you like, of our, this loneliness that humanity seems to be experiencing at the moment, it's these, these robots and AI are becoming these new commercial products that are going to fill these roles in our lives. And I would say, you know, the, the roles, they're not targeted at adult women. These are tar targeted at men at the moment. So why are they, why are they targeted at men? Well, there is this, um, uh, for those who are not familiar, there's a field called uh, sex dolls, and people are talking about, you know, the future of sex robots. You'll be able to have sex robots, so lonely men or men who have disabilities or men who can't find relationships will now have comfort with these, uh, with these dolls. I think in order to understand that, we have to think about how women in this world, the kind of structure that men and women live in. So not in Ireland, hopefully, but uh, in the world, there exists a global commercial trade in human bodies for sex. And it's primarily the bodies that are for sale are women and girls and children. And then there are uh, gay men. Now, this global market, the main buyers of these human bodies are men. They buy them, they can go and access them and pay for access to a body that normally you wouldn't actually be able to uh, interact with unless you had the consent, unless you really had the interest of the other person. They can bypass all that. You can pay for kisses, you can pay for anal sex, you can pay for um, defecating on someone, you name it, whatever you fancy in the world, you can buy it from a human body. So I became very interested in these, uh, these ways of thinking. I thought, well, where did they get the idea for sex dolls from? You know, where, where did they come from? Because there's always like an origin story, right? People always have to say an idea comes from somewhere. So I thought, where did, where did they get it from? Turns out that they got the idea from prostitution. So this is David Levy, who is one of the uh, proponents, you know, that kind of advocates of the future of sex robots and their positive benefits in our society. And he was asked in an interview, so what is it like researching the possibility of sex with robots? You ended up writing a lot about sex dolls. Did you know about sex dolls before you wrote your book? I hadn't thought about them beforehand at all. It was absolutely fascinating doing the research. Then I got the idea that sex with dolls is like sex with prostitutes. You don't know the prostitute. She doesn't love you or care for you. It's only interested in the size of your wallet. So I think robots can simulate love, but so what if they can't? People pay prostitutes millions and millions for regular services. I thought prostitution was a very good analogy. So these are people inside the field who are making these analogies between human, women mainly, and dolls. And I want to draw your attention to the explicit misogyny that is in that statement. It is not disguised in any way, shape or form. There is a clear parallel between a doll and a human prostitute. And the kind of the, the lack of empathy that seems to underscore the, the kind of approach in that, in, in that perspective, I think is palpable. And it's also repeated in his work as well. There's definitely a kind of um, you don't have to be empathetic when you pay for a person uh, People call you pay for sex. I think you pay for sexual abuse because when you actually are having sex with someone, the old classic term for sex 
with others was called intercourse because it was this idea that it would be mutual, you know, it would be bi-directional. It wouldn't just be a one-way street. And, and I think the kind of instrumental uh, activities that take place when men buy the bodies of human females is an instrumental act of violence. So these analogies, again, between prostitution. So I started to think, well, if in prostitution there is a breakdown between humans and machines, then you've got to have something... You've got to make the analogy, um, you know, you've got to get the idea from somewhere. There's got to be something in the world already that kind of makes the analogy possible. So this idea that there is this market in human bodies, that uh, the women in these industries are coerced, that there are, there are literally branding techniques, that these aren't, um, that the majority of prostituted people around the world are the poorest women in the world. They do come from indigenous communities or black communities, they are disenfranchised. All these things, again, makes it possible for people to start thinking about them as interchangeable with things. And I want to be very clear here. I never made any analogies between people in prostitution and sex dolls and sex robots. These analogies were made by the authors of these papers that came before me. All I did was I looked at those papers and I looked at what they were saying about human beings and the analogies that they were making with dolls. And then I had to think, well, what is it about the woman and her body? I mean, is it, is it just this idea that you can buy this thing called sex? I, you know, I've got a TED talk about why you can't buy sex, um, because sex is part of a person and it can't be extracted like coal from a rock. It can't, it can't unless, it's, unless it's an intercourse experience, unless you're both experiencing it together, you cannot actually extract it from another human being. So when we think about the history of women and women's place in society, we see that women's bodies themselves have been this like experimental ground for property relations because women have, uh, through their own objectification, have got to rethink their bodies as inferior, as something that need to uh, reproduce or modify or alter so there's been an increase in people not uh, liking the look of their vaginas because now pornography is so widespread that they see the vaginas in the pornographic films, um, which have been surgically altered, and then they look at those vaginas and they themselves want to have surgically uh, altered vaginas. The same with nipples, breast enhancements. And I just can't believe this image here is a real image. You can go, on a, you can go to a surgery and you can have an image like this. And it can tell you all the parts of your body you can alter uh, and enhance. And um, so I think this kind of objectification that we have as women and how we've thought about ourselves as pieces of property that we can modify and alter has also fed into this kind of idea of being a, a woman. And then what happened was I started to realise that this idea of the person as property is not really a new idea. It really goes back... To slavery. And so I began to look at like uh, philosophers that advocated slavery, like Aristotle. He, um, if you use Aristotle in your work, um, please don't, especially if you're talking about women. <laughs> he, he made this in the politics, he wrote about politics, he wrote about the structure of uh, society in ancient Greece. <coughs> and what he did was he made this analogy as well. He said, 
Tools can be animate or inanimate. A slave is a sort of living piece of property. So you've got to imagine that, right? Because the human beings that were walking around back in ancient Greece weren't like walking around looking like hammers or something. They were, they were like human beings, just like we were. But what happened was philosophy becomes a, a system of rationalization of oppression. It becomes a way for the elites to service their own agenda. And philosophers can often hand the elites a kind of a framework for exploitation. We know that with Nazism, we know that with racial thinking, um, and I think in many quarters it's going on in artificial intelligence and robotics today. So I think we should be very critical of philosophers and, um, and interrogate always, find out where they're coming from and what kind of, what kind of ethics of the human that they have in their, their ideas. So I'm going to talk about a couple of ideas about people as property that probably don't even seem like people as property ideas, you know, property relations, transhumanism. Um, I think there is, there is a movement ethically in our society to redefine our ethics around the human in order to open up the human to more exploitation. So, for example, the body, there's a lot of merchandise in here, um, but there's this thing called uh, human rights and there's legislation against things like organ trafficking and organ donation. Um, so I think there's, there's a movement now to get people to rethink uh, how you can get around those laws, how you can make it more permissible. We certainly know with things like surrogacy, you know, because everyone always says, well, there's good surrogacy, but there's bad surrogacy. Um, so the good surrogacy is what happens in the West. But the bad surrogacy is when Europeans go off to the third world like India and um, hire Indian women to birth their children on what called baby farms. So there's all these different ways now where we're trying to rethink about the body as property. And what better way to do that than to say, wouldn't it be great if you could enhance your body? You know, if you could put microchips in your head and, you know, you're, you don't need a human heart. You can have one we could like. We could manufacture a heart or an arm for you. And at the moment, these are marginalized communities, again, that are the testing ground for these ideas. So with disability, for example, physical disability becomes a frontier where these roboticists can get to experiment with these new technologies on the body. But I think unless there is some change and unless there is some real kind of ethical opposition, I think we are moving into a future where the, these kind of uh, the turning of the body, turn of human relationships into forms of property that are marketable and commercial is not going to end. And I think the social sciences have played their part in also assisting this. As I said, don't ever trust a philosopher. Find out where they're coming from. Um, I don't know if any of you know about the work of actor network theory. Very popular. Um, it was very popular when I went to Cambridge. And it's like people and things are the same. It's like you have to get your head around that. And I remember once asking a question. I'm, I remember saying... You know, but people and things aren't different. I remember my teachers not answering me. <laughs> it's like, and, and I remember at the time thinking, I must be stupid because I must get why people and things are equivalent and they're like interchangeable. Because if, I, if, the, if the people who are my teachers are really buying into this idea that people and things are equivalent, then it must be true. Anyway, I don't agree with this theory. And you, you can read why in my first book... 
But there's also this theory as well called the Cyborg Manifesto that a lot of people bought into. And here you have, you know, a feminist wrote this, so it must be okay. Um, and here we have, you know, a woman, she's got a, an animal draped over her. So she's breaking down the, uh, dis the distinction between animal and human. She's had a computer, so she's breaking down the distinction between animal, human, and machine. Uh, she's got these swirling galaxies in the background. So, every, you know, matter and the cosmos and um, atoms, everything's kind of part of this universe. So these are all philosophies that I think have laid the foundation for this, this kind of anti-humanism that I think is present, which has meant two things. It's meant, first of all, uh, the, the human relationships are, you know, breaking down. People are having less relationships. They are moving away from having children, for example, which is, a you know, having a child with somebody is a really um, strong commitment that you could have to another human being. And I think there is an increasing, we know now for the last hundred years when sociologists have looked at, maybe there are sociologists who are more expert on this, have looked at it, hundred years, there seems to be a decline in social association as well. Less groups, less participation in organizations, less participation in politics. Now people say everyone's moved online, but we can have a talk about that. I'm gonna end it there because I've got loads on slides and I do tend to lose track when I'm, I'm talking because I can get into lots of other things, but I just want to end it on where I'm coming from. So I, I think, you know, I think if we put machines, if we, if we buy into the idea that machines and AI avatars can substitute our intimate relations, um, we are simultaneously, if you like, dehumanizing ourselves. Because it's a bit like living among the animals. And I, I think if you had a choice between living among animals and living among machines, go and live with the animals. Because at least they're like us, you know, they're alive and they sleep and they wake and, um, and they have communication. M machines are artifacts. They're commercially produced artifacts. And um, they're very reductionist in that sense. And there's also another idea that I write about in my work, which is about tools. Because if we're confused about what it means to be human, if we say that some human beings we can relate to and use as tools, quite literally, um, and then, um, you know, we can turn some kind of tools into persons, which is something we were talking about earlier. So a granting citizenship to machines is the latest, latest kind of buzz thing. If we have that underlying confusion in our society, that's going to create more distortion and more confusion. I think that's very problematic. And robots are tools. They aren't machines. They're tools that we use, that we can make use of. But people are not tools, and they can't be used and related to in those ways. And I suppose our social and political and economic systems should always value that about our humanity. And just finally, I suppose um, I draw quite heavily on the work of Martin Buber, I and Thou. So he wrote um, a book called I and Thou. He said, when you say I, the you is always um, spoken as well, because we have this thing called pronoun reversal. When I say I, I say you are. And when you're speaking in the subject position, you say I am and you are, meaning me. 
So we have this interrelatedness between us. Um, and he said, this is always permanent. Every time we speak, we are always invoking these interpersonal pronouns. But he says, sometimes we can speak and the other is not a you or a thou, but an it, a thing, a tool, back to the time of Aristotle, back to the, the slave. And he said, well, this is a real problem because if our relations become more characterized by these thing-like qualities, then that's, you know, that's going to be problematic for our humanity. And I think some of those trends are occurring now. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Plotting the Future podcast. You can listen to previous lectures in the series on the Plotting the Future website and also on the podcast page of the UCD Humanities Institute's website.